Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joe Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Why do we do this podcast? Perhaps you've wondered this during our journey, or maybe you haven't. If you've been with us long enough, you've probably heard me give the answer a few times. It's about the conversation. When we started, we didn't know or necessarily care if anyone listened. I just wanted to capture recordings of some of my most treasured moments, talks with a friend and former professor about the deepest topics. While I was at it, I figured I'd release them if anyone else was interested in the experience. While the fact that we've been heard by thousands of people across the world is humbling, it isn't what gives the show meaning. Likewise, while we've been offered the opportunity to make money from the show, we kept it ad-free because financial gain isn't why we do it either. In many ways, what gives the show meaning is the quest to find that very thing. Meaning. Today, we hope you'll listen in as we search for it. And even more, we hope you'll join in the search as well. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Very nice. It's true. Yeah. I, it's, on both sides, it's true. Yeah, it was, it's funny. Um, when we, when I brought up the topic this week, I go, wow, we've never done an episode on meaning, which seems strange. And then I sat down to write the intro and it was almost, it, human consciousness is such a weird thing, right? Because <laughs> there's just like this in, in intuition, right? Where I go, this is a meaningful episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you go, you go, this is this is a big deal, yeah. and I, you know, I wanted to have an, an intro that that reflected that and, and got that across. And I didn't even really realize it until I was writing the intro that 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 really is what the show is about, right? And that is, it's a big part of what philosophy is about is is finding meaning or making it, right? So I apologize to you ahead of time because, you know, I, I was writing the questions and I literally laughed to myself. I go, oh, he's, this is going to be a, a tough one. <laughs> Nothing to he, apologize he's, for. He's going to struggle with some of them and then he's going <laughs> to get back at me by turning them on me. Well, what do you think about that? So I, I, I am. I guarantee you. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be lucky if we get through two or three of them hashing out the different, the different uh, aspects of it. But what do we mean when we talk about meaning all right let's consider the etymology which is which is marvelous because it reveals etymological research is is a you spend your life studying etymology but but even if you if if you just dive in and look up a word and say the word and then put the word etymology next to it and you'll get the history and you, some things you might might have known, and some things are fresh and new. And you say, oh, oh, but they have they carry such possible strands of conversation. So, so in the 1300s, minenge meant an act of remembering. All right, uh, and that's that's considered an obsolete use now. Well, that's what 800 years ago. Uh, a significance, a sense of significance, or a sense of importance, and and in Middle English, meaning from an older English, more Latinate kind of sound, an intent to do something. Hmm. Meaning is a, a plan, or an object, or an intent to convey something. Well, that is indeed, you know, that's why I'm chuckling when you're doing the internet. That's, that's what we're doing. We're trying to convey. Right. We're, we're, we're trying to construct, uh, to signify, to intend, 
uh, to think and and sometimes even to desire. But all of those are built into meaning. And when we and so, but if we we say to somebody, "You know what I mean." Well, sometimes that's social grease, and we'll just say, sure, because we don't want to get any further into a conversation. But if you're really into a conversation, no, I don't. Tell me. Yeah. That can be the most perplexing thing uh, to slow a conversation, a, a marvelous tool to slow a conversation down, especially if you're talking about topics that are very difficult to people. Mm. They want to say something, but they don't want to say something. That's, they want to say what they think and then get on with it. But <laughs> yeah, you sent me a great article this week talking about oh, yeah. um, scientism, and that might be a cool episode to do, give it its own space at some point. But um, the the author was pointing out that, you know, how discussions about scientism, which is this idea that, um, you know, science, and, and that's, it's hard to give it a blanket statement, right? Do you have weak and strong positions about right. um the authority of science, uh, you know, is science all that there is to give us knowledge or is science the best way of giving us knowledge and how, um, you know, people like us, right? <laughs> Philosophers or, you know, people in the humanities, that sort of thing, um, tend to weaponize scientism and say, oh, well, the worship of science or, you know, the over, uh, you know, the over the over embellishment of the importance of science yeah, yeah is is you know in some way detrimental and the author was basically saying yeah but though you know that's not what's actually happening with scientism at least in certain certain uh ways no it's it's but yeah it was an interesting article for that because it essentially takes you back to the root of well what do we think science means and how do we go about it yeah, we can talk about scientism. Yeah, so uh, that's like the example you were giving of slowing down a conversation by just asking some, well, what do you mean? That was the author's example in that article was, well, you know, you have to establish what you mean when you say scientism before you start talking about it. Otherwise, you just talk past each other, right? Because you, the conceptions you have of the topic that you're talking about are completely different. Yeah, and sometimes it can be weaponized. I, I I'm, I'm not proud to say that I have I've approached it that way upon occasion. If I really, it's, and it's not weaponist in trying to batter somebody. Uh, so weapons probably not the best word, but it's, but it is to try to slow down somebody to say you might not think exactly what you think you think. Mm. <laughs> right. So I'm giving you another chance. <laughs> what was that quote from last week? You know what you do. You uh, like to think you know why you do it, but you you don't know know what you do does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's paraphrase, <laughs> or or in the immortal words of of Daffy Duck, <laughs> let's do this again. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you give us the broad strokes of different philosophers' thoughts on meaning throughout history? Yes, let's start with Monty Python. <laughs> there's, there's, there's. There's there's so much that's that's interesting in Monty Python and uh, and they have a philosophy song. Some of you may know it. They were they were it, as as was all things entropy hits. Monty Python was brilliant comedy in the '60s when I was a little too early for me, but I encountered them in college in the '70s and I was just in awe. 
of of their satire and their ability to to do things. Uh, but the in in their film, the meaning of life, which doesn't deliver anything other than uh, essentially uh, the meaning of life is wake up in the morning, uh, uh, try to eat some good food if you can find it, uh, maybe read a book, uh, have a conversation with somebody, look at the day, go back to bed. And <laughs> it's, and, and people objected, this is not the meaning of life. Well, you know, it's not, it's really not that far off <laughs> <laughs> from some things that philosophers have said of uh, uh, Nietzsche or Nietzsche, he who has a why to live, W-H-Y, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Mm. Now, on the surface, what, what did he just say? Mm. If you have a why, W-H-Y, why am I living? And you probably have many you know, then the how of keeping going can be uh, maintained because you have that why, you have that, that meaning, whatever you set the meaning to be. This is an old uh, idea come back, as so many things do. But essentially we have this. What if it, we either think, A, there's no meaning in life, B, uh, there's no meaning in life, but we make it. See, there is meaning in life. Well, then either it comes from the inside or it comes from the outside. If it comes from the outside, it may be a supernatural origin. I'm really summarizing <laughs> the, the extent of, of trying to just gloss the whole thing. Um, or if it comes from the inside, then it is. it could be from supernatural or from one's own subconscious or conscious mind, then people start insisting, well, there's not a supernatural, so it must come from within. If it comes from within, therefore, it's a construct of ourselves. More or less, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. The, the thing. Yeah, so that's good. That's, um, you know, that covers in a succinct terms the sort of the history of, of philosophy on meaning, <laughs> right? And what's interesting is, um, you know, this obviously this doesn't occur in a vacuum. Philosophers, when they're thinking about meaning, you're having to integrate that with the other forms of knowledge that you have. And obviously, as time has gone on and as scientific knowledge has expanded and stuff, that changes some of the ways that we think about meaning. Um, I was watching a documentary last night, Our Fantastic Universe, I think yeah. it was. This is, you know, just an hour long documentary, History of the Universe. Um, and trying to establish what the meaning is. That, that's what caught my attention is as I was looking through um, the documentary, it says, uh, in the description, it says, what's the meaning of the universe? And I go, I want to watch this before tomorrow's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and so- a lot you of it, arrive at? Yeah, a lot of it was very scientific. Um, you know, it's just sort of the scientific history of the universe, you know, talking about from the very beginning to the end. And then at the end, you know, they, they draw it together. Um, and that's basically what philosophers are trying to do as well, right? You're looking at, okay, well, here's the clearest picture of what we think happened. And as we've talked about on a regular basis, science is not a set of facts. It's a process of understanding reality. So that's the best you can say. You can't say this is what happened. You can say this is what we think happened. And then trying to determine what makes the most sense, you know, and, and one of the things that, that comes back and that they mentioned in the, um, 
episode. You know, they have a lot of a lot of people, you know, doctors at Oxford and, you know, King's College and all over the place, right? Um, philosophers, astrophysicists and all of these types. And they go, um, you know, the one the one thing that they each one of them kept talking about was that when they found out that the universe was not static state, there was a huge um, resistance in the scientific community to that, right? Because mm. if you just assume that the universe always existed, then that gives you fundamentally different metaphysical views than if there was a big bang. The yep, second you yep. say there was a beginning of time and space, that really is a very, that really opens you up to supernatural meaning in a way that a static steady state universe doesn't, right? And so that's what these, and it's funny to think that, you know, philosophers and astrophysicists and, and people at the highest levels of, of science are still grappling with this today, this idea that, well, science seems to point to the fact that there was a beginning to space and time. And so what does that mean? What is the meaning of that to being a human being, to being life, to being the universe, right? We, and we want to know. Mm -hmm. And we think we want to know. Well, we, we do want to know. Blast it, we want to know. Why can't we know? You know, these are not odd questions. I think lots of people have these questions, but when you're wrestling with those questions, if you take the time to wrestle with them a little bit, you're doing philosophy. And it's some of the deepest thinking that there is, but it's almost always metaphorical. You know, I mean, um, William James, American writer, a philosopher, educator of, of note back in the, well, back in the late 1900s, really, well, late 1800s, early 1900s. He said, we may be in the universe as dogs and cats are in our libraries. Hmm. Seeing the books and hearing the conversation, but having no inkling of the meaning of it at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, one of the guys in the documentary, just really impressive credentials. Uh, Alistair McGrath, I think his name was. And he had, you know, he'd done research in philosophy and mathematics and physics and all of these different areas, right? And he said, you know, that's the fundamental defining feature of humanity is looking out into the universe and trying to find meaning. But it's not just that. He said, there's also the nagging doubt that there might not be a meaning to find at all, right? Ah, and you go, oh. <laughs> now you're going into the French philosophers, uh, uh, Emile Ch uh, Chorin. To be or not to be, neither one nor the other. <laughs> 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 so we're going from nowhere <laughs> to Shut nothing. Up. Right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, it's, it's funny that so it's science, right? The process of science pointing to the fact. And, but here's the thing again, pointing to the fact what we believe happened is that there's a big bang 13.8 million years ago. Yep. But the, the problem with that is still that you're saying that space and time originated from an infinitely dense point. And what we know time and time again is that there's a, if there's an infinity in the mathematics, that's really just a placeholder saying that we don't understand what happened. <laughs> Not that there actually was an infinite point, right? Um, but you you have to operate from that that 
paradigm given the current model of physics, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's interesting because if you operate from that paradigm given the current model of physics, what what Alistair McGrath was saying at the end of the episode, right after you give the whole history of the universe and then try to say, is there a meaning? Um, the graphic that they used was was this slot machine in space, right? And, you know, slot machine normally have three windows and you try to hit all three numbers. Well, this slot machine just went on forever. And you pulled the lever and each one matched all the way down the line. And you go, we've talked about this before. Um, all of the parameters that are necessary to have the universe that we live in, that we observe, you know, is one in like 60 sextillion or something, which is the same odds as putting a quarter at the edge of the universe and shooting a bullet and hitting it, right? <laughs> very, very small. And, yeah. you, and you go, and so his conclusion was, well, basically, you either have to give some sort of supernatural explanation or you have to adopt a multiverse paradigm. So those are really your two options. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true, but that's true if the current model is correct. If the infinity in the math is actually an infinity. And There's like a, I was just saying, more a lot right of, here. yes, yeah. a lot of <laughs> physicists who know what they're talking about have said the infinity in the mathematics is, is not really there. Something happened that we don't understand, but it wasn't an infinite point of density. Okay. In space. And then I, and I hop back up out of the math, uh, scrambling up the pile of <laughs> numbers that you just created and all the ifs. So, well, you know, if the conditions weren't right for us, they might have been right for something else. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but because we're here, we say, oh, it was made for us. Mm-hmm. Right from the get-go, we have to Yeah, say, oh, it's a chicken and egg thing. <laughs> it really is. I mean, but, but now we're into that interiority and exteriority of – and what our conversation is doing is also uh, – I mentioned this before the, we started recording – is really we're moving from the analytic to the synthetic. Analytic, we look at the meaning of words. Mm. The synthetic is we accept for a moment the given meaning of the word, and then we go on to try to explore it. So – uh, Joseph Campbell, we've talked about him, we talked about the hero's journey and all of that. He's, he says, life is without meaning. You bring the meaning to it because we're separate from life somehow. You bring the meaning to it. The meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Being alive is the meaning. Okay, back to, back to uh, Emil Chorin. Uh, the fact that life has no meaning is a reason to live, moreover, the only one. So people who are philosophers who approach it from that view say, life is just life. It's the background noise. It's the setting. Uh, it's, it's nature. It's whatever. It has no intent. There's no intent there. The only intent is when we bring intent to it. Interesting, right? So, yeah, so we have. We've looked at this analytically where we've said, okay, the um, – you know, the scientists who are trying to find, um, you know, the external meeting are saying, well, you're going to have to go supernatural or you're going to have to play the odds and just say there's, there's an infinite number of things. And then you have the philosophers who are looking at the internal thing and saying, well, there really isn't anything other than what you're bringing to it. <laughs> so, you, again, you have sort of math and then you have humanities, right? So we've, we've talked about this math 
aspect of it quite a bit yeah. with the, the universe. So let me ask you this. Um, is meaning the natural product of language or vice versa or neither? Uh, <laughs> you're getting French. You really are. <laughs> okay. Is meaning... The, say it again. Is meaning the product of language, vice versa, or neither? All right, we're back to that earlier thing, but Jean-Luc Godard, uh, uh, a, a French filmmaker, uh, also take on... What you're asking is to be or not to be. <laughs> Was Shakespeare made famous, right? Godard... Godard said it's not really a question. <laughs> um, of course, I say, of course, on one level, starting out here somewhere, and yes, I'm going to throw this back at you. <laughs> of course, language helps us construct whatever it is we mean by meaning because we wouldn't be able to con uh, convey it otherwise. It wouldn't be exterior from ourselves. We can think all the things we want to think. If we don't have any kind of language, symbol system, semiotics, semantics, any linguistics of any kind, whether visual, oral, we can't convey it. Uh, but we've developed all kinds of languages that aren't just strictly or limited to written languages, including music. Or, or, or art, which does convey things, but of course they don't necessarily convey them in one linear way, and 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 they go flying all off. So does does meaning depend on language? That was the first part, right? Mm -hmm. Second part is, or did meaning create language? Is that roughly it? Yeah. So because I want to get to the second does part. Does meaning come from language? Does language come from meaning? Or is neither one necessarily the case? All right. I think you can argue that meaning comes uh, comes from language when you're trying to convey what you have found or what your intent is in the world. I think you can, can convey an intent pretty well without ever saying a word, but you're still using symbols. If you're going to threaten, if you're going to glower, if whatever. And I think you can create your own meaning in the world without ever saying anything in any direct fashion. But it's possible to conceive of someone moving through life, never saying a thing, but clearly giving the impression of having a past. Yeah, I think that where it's interesting is that in a purely human um, perspective, it's very hard to separate the two because even if you don't employ language, um, there's a very good chance that your inner monologue, right? You're mm -hmm. using language to mm -hmm. define concepts. So I think in order to understand it, you, we have to go back. We either have to look at animal models like we love to do or primitive um, alternative human races and prehistory like we talked about during our, yeah. our um, uh, previous episode. So. If you put yourself in those situations, I think that the question becomes a little bit clearer. Okay, if you're one of these, you know, other hominid species, you know, half a million years ago on the African savanna, do 
you have a meaning that informs you your language? Do you, is there a meaning that you have that causes you to develop language? Or by communicating, which probably didn't start as language, but by communicating with your group and that communication developing, does advanced meaning take place in the brain? It's a, kinet it's a kinesthetic language. It's, uh, you can con convey without ever saying a word, but words are implied or concepts are implied. If emotion is equated with not just a single word, because let's posit that there aren't words yet, but emotions are trying to convey something. The likelihood it's conveying a whole cluster of things in which you're trying to guess what the context might be in order to figure out what somebody is trying to say to you. Um, we get where we get hung up with meaning is, and, and, and there are lots of people who, who do translation who talk about this, is that if we just, and it's curious because it takes me back to something you were talking about pre show and uh, about reading. If we, if we just try to assert a one-to-one -one, uh, relationship and a, transac a transactional translation of words. Oh, ah, this word means this in French. This word means this in Latin. Okay, I've got it. Now I can st string them together. We're not thinking about grammar. We're not thinking about tonality. We're not thinking about shades and subtlety of meaning. We're not thinking about this word might not mean it, it looks like it would be roughly the same concept, but it might not contain the same concept. So in that way, language, which is always churning, 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 language generates confusion as much as meaning. But the meaning comes from rest, resting something out of the language. Yeah. Peripherally. When you talked about, we, we were having that discussion, uh, that really our minds are taking in words out on the fringe, letters and words out on the fringe that we don't even necessarily know if we're really awake when we're reading. Well, it's the same in life. Some people can walk down the street and not notice anything. Sometimes. Sometimes they notice everything. And it can be the same person. Mm -hmm. So it, it's so it's not a, again, one-to-one -one correspondence. I was walking down the street in Warsaw to a coffee shop. And I went inside, and, and, and uh, I love our little coffee shop, and I, I went inside, and, and the proprietor said, what do you think about the alley? I didn't notice the alley. There's an alley in where I live. It's been filled with trash for years and years and years, and I don't know whose responsibility, but it never... He said, oh, well, we, we've cleaned it all up. We're going to open up an area uh, in a few days, a week or so, where uh, in which people are going to be able to go out and and eat and have coffee in this nice shady place and look at the traffic and everything. And I said, I got to see this. So I walked back out. There are lights strung between the buildings. There's gravels, tables set up. I walked right by it and I didn't see it. Hmm. Um, he's brought a different, and his, he and his family, his crew, have, have brought a different potential of meaning to the same, to the space, which has changed because of well, not just because of the ornamentation and the the appointments that he's bringing in and getting rid of the trash has fundamentally changed the spirit of the of the alley. Well, that's what language does. So meaning is being given to a place far different than the place seemed to have accrued. Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, 
maybe a good there thought experiment go. <laughs> would be a good thought experiment might be to see if meaning stays the same as language changes, right? So let's imagine again, I, I like music, right? So we'll go, you know, if you were in the 1800s and somebody said that a musical piece was splendid, and then the 1960s, somebody said a musical piece was groovy, and then the 1990s, somebody said a musical piece was cool, and then in 2020, somebody said that a musical piece slaps. Do they all mean the same thing? <laughs> kind of, right? Is the meaning the same, but the language changes, right? Or is a good question, Joe. Is the is the meaning changing because the language is changing? Which of those words took you by surprise as you thought through them? Um well I I was I was trying to think of just a couple of them that spanned a a time frame. Um and you know, I I think that an important part of it is that they they all relate to to (laughs) to different music, right? Because um, the music of those time frames involved would be very different. Occasionally, you will see that in meme version nowadays, as, as a joke. Um, you know, there'll be like a Mozart piece, and somebody will say, "This song slaps," right? And you go, "Well, that doesn't—it's incongruous, <laughs> right?" Because it seems like what you're using to describe it doesn't quite match. But you see, the difference between those shaded things that you said—I want to take this on because this is. First, it's it's indicative of despite my my great joy in encountering people of all ages and trying to uh, spend time with people across generations. That's the first time I've heard the word slaps. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I read a lot and I listen a lot and I've never encountered it. Okay, but yeah, let's see. You said splendid. What else? Uh, a groovy. Cool. Yeah, groovy. Slaps. Which of those is an active verb? Yeah. Slaps is the right, active right. verb. Everything else is an adjective. Hmm. Okay, so something has shifted in the assessment of music for whomever uses the word that indicates an interactiveness hmm. that, that uh, an activeness that is passive in the previous words. It's splendid. Well, yes, that means it's all under control, and I'm out there, and there's the music, and I've had a nice little... But the music's not really doing anything, or the music is cool. That's saying something about the music as if it's static and standing still, but slaps. It's wondrous, because it's it's active. Yeah, and looking at etymology of, of those words is just... It's an interesting progression, right? You think about groovy, and it's like, okay, grooves, you know, like... Or cool, like... the temperature or slaps and an active you know like why would we why do we use these words what is the meaning behind these words related to the enjoyment of music right how does that how does that work right? how does how does that work and is it somebody just trying to it, it doesn't emerge out of the churning language the language something organic because the symbols <laughs> the symbols are not related to you know, or, orally, audit, auditorily re- receiving and enjoying sound, right? Cool doesn't have anything to do with that. Groovy, I mean, maybe if you're thinking about like an LP, you know, like a vinyl record well, and the needle <laughs> bouncing on the grooves, you could be, that could be technically slaps, nothing, you know, yeah. splendid. I probably don't know enough about the etymology of that to, <laughs> to say, but it, again, like, why do we associate these symbolic language? 
what is the meaning that we give to them when we are relating them to something that's unrelated? Right. Do we mean physical violence? Do we mean uh, do we mean uh, teasing? Do we mean uh, do we mean waves against the shore? But whatever it is, it's coming in and it has some it has some effect on us. <laughs> and but that's what happens with language. It's people start using a word somewhere. Someone said slaps. Mm-hmm. And it took off, or or in multiple places. However unlikely that may seem, four or five people around the planet more or less just decided to say that that music slaps. Yeah. All right, and then it's just it's it's oh, language is infectious. Language is viral. All the terms that we use about things that happen on the internet. Uh, language has been that way long before the internet. It's viral. Suddenly, it's catching. Everyone has caught it. <laughs> and in another year or two, there'll be a different word or a, a synonymous. There'll, there'll be word, all of the different words going on at the same time, all of them conveying meaning, but not the same meaning if we really pay attention. So then I guess your position would be that meaning informs language, you think? Yeah. Think, yeah okay. All right. How about you? What do you think? I don't know. I still think that it's difficult, right? If we go back to our, our proto-hominids and we go, or you look at animals, right? I guess, I suppose it makes sense because, um, you know, animals that are, are able to communicate at a more um, advanced level tend to be the ones that show more human-like um, attributes, you know, elephants and whales and these sorts of animals that that express grief, that, that show pain, that show happiness, that show playfulness, these sorts of things. Whereas if you have an insect, um, but I don't know, because, you know, ants are great communicators, right? But they don't, they don't display human-like There's an intent. There's an intent. Uh, okay, There's so definitely I'm, meaning, right? Yeah, when, you, when we go back to the, the etymology of meaning, they right. have an intent. They right? have they an have intent. A, the, here's something that just, you, it just came into my mind. I, I want to mention this because it was... It, we have, all of us, have so many stories. If we pay attention to what's going on in, in any given day, no matter how mundane it seems. And this is what teaches us more. So I, I was leaving the pre-preschool with my granddaughter, uh, walking. She was starting to get on a wall that she likes to walk and run on. And and then she stopped because there was a sound a, away from us of a kid going, ah, ah. And... I didn't give it any thought, and she stopped, and she looked around, and she said, what does that kid want? And I said, which kid? And she said, there was a kid making noise. They, they want something. And, and then she looked around, and she, her eyes landed on uh, a, presumably a mom walking with uh, two kids. One was a, a, a baby, not quite toddler yet. The other one was more of a toddler and I, I, presumably the kid had made the noise and and she said oh it was that baby and so she's just jumping to all of this right? and, and i said what does the baby want well the baby is cold or wants something to eat grandpa or it's it's not comfortable something's making it not it's, it wants something i didn't think about that until you just said this right but that 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 my granddaughter at four was deciding that language, a sound, which wasn't language, had an intent, and we had better figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So yeah, I think I think so. Meaning causes us to generate language. Yeah, yeah. I I think that that. Yeah, you know, it's just—it's a conundrum. It is. It's difficult because language is language is. I think too advanced a concept. I think communication is where it gets real hairy, right? Because (laughs) you think about all of the different life forms and how they communicate with each other, and you go, "Well, in the evolution, right? In the in the phylogeny of this species, what happened first? Did Did ants decide?" You know, did they communicate that they needed to build a bridge out of their bodies to reach this thing in order for the colony to survive? Or was that meaning there before the communication was? Or were they communicating that that needed to be, you know, I, I, I right. think that it is meaning. I think I, I do think meaning comes first, but it's tricky. It's very tricky. It, it is. Well, and you asked about the philosophers. Again, I, I keep thinking of this whole string of... Uh, David Hume, we've talked about him often, uh, 18th century philosopher. The life of, of man, read human, the life of humans is of no greater importance to the universe than that of an oyster. Hmm. Why is it? that This is, for me, the essential question. I want you to answer this question, too, with me. Why is it that we think the universe needs to be okay with what we do. Why is it that we need to think that the universe gives a flying flip about what what we're about? What is this need to be of so much importance? That's the fascinating part for me. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, are we really that different from the ant in that regard, right? If the ant is deciding that it needs to build a bridge, what is the meaning behind the bridge? The meaning is that they need to get to this thing in order to survive. It might not be all that different with humans. Our anthropocentric viewpoint might be solely derived from our need to feel that our survival matters, right? Mm-hmm. I think that, that that's a big part of it. And so in that case, it is sort of in an internalized um, construct. Yeah. So is the concept of meaning inextricably linked with the notion of truth, do you think? Um, only in a... Uh, I won't say only. Let's be tentative. <laughs> Possibly in a somewhat relativistic sense. I was that. That was much yeah. more caution. No more of these <laughs> overgeneralizations. My wife makes fun of me all the time because um well like you and I were talking before the show, you know, I think that testing your boundaries is is an important part of, of growing and growing is an important part of being human. So mm-hmm. I always like to test my boundaries. It's like I was talking about I like sprinting up the stairs as fast as I can every time. And sometimes I fall down the stairs, right? It's yeah. not pretty. Um other times um you know, I test my creative thinking by just weaving stories off the cuff. And uh, my wife just rolls her eyes and stops paying attention after a while. And every <laughs> once in a while, I strike on something that I think is really clever. And I go, you didn't react. And she goes, I wasn't listening. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but because it's not true, right? She, she goes, I, as soon as I, because sometimes I can trick her. So, you know, 
she'll listen for 30 or 45 seconds. And she goes, well, as soon as I realize that you're spouting nonsense, I stop paying attention, right? So this is that notion of truth, right? If it's true, if I ever convinced that I'm telling her a true story, then she's involved. But as soon as I, she knows that I'm just, it's just creative free license, okay. she's, she's out. And that's an, and then that's an excellent example of one layer of truth. Now let's tell a little story. <laughs> there was a man who went into a room and spent eight hours plucking on strings, muttering to himself. There was a person who spent eight hours with a large piece of paper on a floor in a room he called the studio. Looking, moving, looking at the light, putting some paint strokes, brushing some paint, slamming his hand into the paint, backing up. Mm, no, not quite. For eight hours. The other guy's going. There was a person, a non binary person, who was holding somebody's arm, stretching it out, helping them to move their bodies in a different and new way for the space of an hour. What do all those have in common? Let's be a fourth person, and we're on the outside, and we're just watching. And all we're seeing is what we can see. We can't be inside the mind. Is that meaningful? Is that meaningful? Paint. Is that meaningful? Music in the background, stretching out an arm. What do all those have in common? What's the problem that all of those have in common? What's a, a problem that they have in common? Is that they don't seem to be very meaningful when you describe what's happening. <laughs> yes. And you know what I'm talking <laughs> yes, about with yes. making music or my painting or, or, or my second board doing, uh, uh, working in dance movement therapy or, or my son teaching music. Or, or here's a little girl who crouches down in the middle of a walk on a path, stops and picks up a leaf rubs it on her cheek, looks at that leaf, and says, this place calms me so much, Grandpa. And rubs the leaf. I want to keep this leaf because it reminds me that this place calms me and puts it in a pack. So she's telling me her motivation. Hmm. But somebody watching 100 yards, 100 feet behind wouldn't have heard that. Just saw it. Rub a leaf on the <laughs> take and put it. What's that kid doing? See, I, I think that this is what we forget to do. We forget to to um, make the um, assumption that something that somebody is doing might be just as meaningful to them mm. as something that we're doing that we know is terribly important because we're giving time to it, but I just think we forget this. Yeah, there's this very interesting paradox that takes place where by disassociating the meaning behind an action with the action itself, you suddenly gain some insight into why something may be meaningful to begin with. And that is something that, that causes you to reevaluate your whole life and then make decisions based on it, right? So 
Um, this has been happening to me a lot recently. And what triggered it was something very simple and ordinary. Um, I have a calendar at work, right? And the quote on the calendar at work said, um, enjoy this moment because this moment is your life. And I've been having a very difficult time at work during that month that that was on the calendar. And every day I look at my calendar and I'd see that quote, enjoy this moment because this moment is mm -hmm. your life. Mm -hmm. And then it really sunk in. And then the month ended and I cut that quote out of the calendar and I taped it to the top of my computer monitor. So I see it every, every day, every time I look at it, I see it. Right. And it reminds you that. And I think that, you know, when, when you're talking about meaning, there's a lot of stories out there, right? If you see um, hyper successful people, there's, there's this tropish story that, oh yeah, I was working a nine to five job. And then I suddenly realized, what am I doing with my life? And I went and did this thing. And now look at me, I'm wildly successful and nobody should waste a minute doing anything that they, <laughs> that they don't consider this. There's right? the word. And so, <laughs> and I think that all of us sort of fall prey to this false epiphany once in a while where, where we go, oh my gosh, what am I doing with my life working at this, this dead end or boring job? Like I need to be doing something important. Right. Um, and you know, I think most of us don't quit our jobs or do anything rash or, or you know, insane, but um, we, we have that impulse. But I think that that's the wrong impulse to have initially, right? I think that what I've found that has brought me a much greater sense of peace and meaning in my life, right, is to rather than view my current circumstances as something that is lacking or deficient, or, you know, devoid of meaning, it's to reframe it, right? I look at the actions that I do on a daily basis and I disassociate the meaning that I currently have of them, mm -hmm. which is, what am I doing? I'm just looking at spreadsheets. I'm just doing this. I'm just doing that. What a waste of life, right? Instead, I'm going, well, what, what do the spreadsheets mean? What am I accomplishing by orchestrating this job? I'm making sure that people have power. I'm making sure that people are safe when they're working in, you know, caustic environments. I'm making sure that, that these things are getting done. I'm, I'm giving, I'm making a, a small group of people's lives economically viable. I'm helping them increase yeah. what they're doing. Right. Yeah. And on top of that, from my local perspective, I'm doing a job that it has a, an excellent amount of physical, um, uh, you know, physical movement, nothing extremely strenuous, but nothing sedentary. I'm doing something that is very mentally engaging. It, it's not overwhelming or overly stressful, but it's also not dull and repetitive. It, it, it provides just enough of a challenge to keep me going. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm doing something that provides me with the economic ability to pursue my other passions when, when I'm not there. I'm working with people um, that I enjoy being around and that, that offers something to me on a personal and professional level that makes me a better person, right? And so I don't need to run out and change every aspect of my life. There doesn't have to be this epiphany that changes everything, which isn't necessarily to say that that shouldn't be the result if somebody finds themselves in a terrible situation and something like that could be right. beneficial. But I think that it's it's really damaging for everybody to have that person. We're not all going to go out and create a startup and change yeah. the world in that way. And yeah. it, the big, the important part of meaning, right, 
is like you were just mentioning, all those different things that don't have any meaning if you look at them, right? It's the same thing on the big level, right? There's been plenty of people who have changed the face of music, changed the face of business, changed the face of these things. They commit suicide because they don't, they thought that they would find a meaning at the top and there wasn't a meaning there because it's not that big world changing thing that has the meaning. The meaning was what you thought of the thing that you were doing all along. Picasso said, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Hmm. Picasso was a philosopher because he's an artist. He's not a philosopher that we rank in the, but, or, or, or again, Camus, life is meaningless, but worth living. Provided you recognize it's meaninglessness. See, it's, it's, but, but, but there's more, but what you just said was an encompassing. It was, it's important. If, if I could change one thing about us as, as, as a species, <laughs> I'm going to narrow it down just to the, our, our country. That's big enough. <laughs> it would be to somehow have people realize the arrogance of thinking they know what it's like to be other people, that mm. uh, they know that their meaning has been trained into them and therefore their meaning is for everybody. If we could just abandon that arrogance, say, you know what? You know, the, the surface things, it doesn't, it matters very much to you if you're trans, non-binary, gay, black, white, brown, Catholic, Protestant, Hindu, all the categories. Of course it matters. It matters because of the interiority of it. It also matters on the exterior when people will not treat you with the equal humbleness and regard of humanity. Then it's a big fat deal. But, if, but it wouldn't be if we could simply say, I don't know you. I don't know your conditions. I want to jump and just feel like, okay, I look at you, I know what you're like, and I don't like it. Destructive, acidic, tyrannical, fascistic crap that does nothing to help us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I ran across an interesting quote recently. Well, it was a while back, and I think I mentioned it in one of the episodes a while back, which was that... Um, you know, the one thing that's sort of touted uh, nowadays is empathy, mm -hmm. but the the problem with empathy is that no matter how much you try to understand or put yourself in somebody's place, you're still doing it from your own perspective. And so you will never know what it's like to be in that person's place. And I think that that's, that's exactly what you're saying, right? And it raises an interesting question, which is that is meaning objective or subjective, right? We've, we've given a lot of examples of the subjectivity of, of meaning, this yeah. idea of, you know, I can change my internal thought state, my perspective and things, and, and that, that shifts my sense of meaning. But there are some things that are imposed upon us from the outside, right, mm -hmm. that we may not necessarily be able to um, control subjectively. So what do you, what do you think about that? Is, is meaning is meaning an objective or a subjective phenomenon? I think meaning is a, 
yes. <laughs> I think meaning is subjective to the individual for intent, for the other, the etymological things that we've said about it. But I think the concept of meaning is universal. The trouble is when we forget that the concept is not the specifics. <laughs> And we and, and and we conflate it all, right? And so our way is what the way is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. That that's that's a great description, right? It's it's object meaning is objective in the sense that everybody experiences it in some way, <laughs> but subjectively everybody experiences it different. Meaning slaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I found out the etymology is splendid, by the way, which is to be bright or shining. Ah. Which again, if you put that in the context of classical music, you know, you have brass horn sections mm. and things. And um yeah, again, so that that's a tangent. It's a little bit off hand. But yeah, so I think that it is sort of paradoxically objective and subjective, right? There's it's objective in the sense that it is universal. Everybody experiences meaning. The subjective details are different from person to person. But then also, if people who have a similar view on some of the gross details of subjective meaning band together, they can impose some sort of, they can try to artificially create an objective form of meaning and impose it on others. Yes. So it, it's a complex thing, but I think that that's sort of kind of the way it plays out. Is meaning predicated on reality? <laughs> you were right when you said before. This <laughs> meaning. Well, first we have to talk about reality, don't we? Okay. So uh, just for the sake of, of, of you know humoring me, Joel, what kind of reality do you mean? What do you mean by reality? So, well, let's let's think about the previous question of objective versus subjective, right? Mm -hmm. Let's couch it in similar terms just so that we can actually connect the the two concepts. Okay. So, we'll say reality is objective in the sense that everybody experiences it. So, we'll take out the the whole zombie thought experiment stuff. I'm I'm going to assume you really exist, right? <laughs> okay. So reality yes. is objective in the sense that everybody experiences it. The phenomenological. Right. So there is physical stuff that we encounter. Right. But it's subjective in the sense that it, the details are different from person to person. You and I might look at my walls and I might say that they're tan and you might say that they're a shade of gray or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, so the details are different. Um, I'm actually seeing five values from. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so, so if meaning if, predicated on reality. Yeah. So if if we know that there's an objective reality, but we all experience it a little different, then is how we construct meaning of that reality predicated on the reality that we experience. Oh, that sounds so wishy-washy. I think it's it's partly <laughs> predicated on that reality that you're positing in that sometimes people find their meaning by resisting things that are happening in that reality. But then I'm thinking about the... the 
the reality of, of the very complicated behaviors of people mm. as opposed to the reality of, well, there's a river with a chasm and we call it a park and we walk through it. And so we all but walk in Letchworth Park. Are we all having the same experience? Uh, you know, I, do, does it mean the same thing to all? Well, me, but, but, but we go to a park because we want some interaction with nature. So I'm just going to stick with this example. The park, let's say it's objective. There's a river, there's high cliffs, there's sun, there's whatever, all the elements. And we go presumably because we want to get away <laughs> from something else or to experience something fresh. And so what we find, so our intent led us to the park, but we can be surprised at what we leave with based on what our thought processes and our emotional affect is and, and how we're, we're interacting with that reality. We may leave with insights. We may leave feeling worse than we started. We may leave feeling exuberant about having taken in a, a vista that we hadn't seen in a while or ever, and it takes our minds somewhere else. Um, so the interaction of the inner with that objective reality has probably created a whole lot of meanings. Is that just too vague to... I love this discussion. It's great. <laughs> it's so much fun. So here's what I'm thinking. I'll give you... I didn't, um, I didn't do what you wanted. So you no, could. no, I, I like that a lot. I'm going to give two kind of uh, polar polar opposites to maybe clarify it a little bit. So okay. um, one good one is in, in psychology. Every once in a while, um, you have one of these... Uh, case studies that just really shakes up the, the whole field, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One such study was this, this lady named S who, um, the, the pain and fear centers in your brain run through a pretty, you know, pretty obvious track. And if you have, um, brain lesions in different parts, it'll lead to different, um, different behaviors, right? Now there's this lady that, uh, you know, what they found is that if you if you have problems with the pain receptor in the prefrontal cortex where you do the thinking about pain um, versus the amygdala or the hypothalamus where you do the sort of the, the autonomous sensation of pain, there's different things that happen. So there's this lady that um, she had a, a lesion on a certain part of her brain. And so she would experience pain just like the rest of us. Um, but the fear that was supposed to be associated with pain didn't exist. So she would put forth no effort to avoid experiencing pain. And she essentially had to be watched at all times because there was nothing that would stop her from just breaking her arms or her legs or cutting herself open because she wasn't scared of any of it. Mm. And if you asked her if those things would hurt, she would say yes. And she would experience pain the same way everybody else would but she wouldn't go to any lengths to avoid it, right? That is one end of how does reality and meaning correlate, right? I think the other end goes back to the beginning of our conversation, talking about um, supernatural causes for the universe, right? If you have a theological perspective 
on reality and you say, okay, well, somewhere out there, um, there's a God or there's an alien species making a simulation or there's somebody out there that's responsible for reality. But I can't observe them. They're not actually part of a phenomenological reality, but I'm giving it meaning. That's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So now this idea of how does reality inform meaning or vice versa becomes a really difficult question to answer. It is. You're absolutely right. You present those polar uh, viewpoints. Uh, I, I feel exonerated just a bit because <laughs> essentially, we're saying that there are many meanings. There are many, and those meanings derive in part from what we witness or what we experience or what we don't worry about experiencing. Uh, and so somewhere along there, 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 there are the Chris Hemsworth who say, sure, I'll go dangle off a building, even though I know I could get very hurt by this. And it's and so it's not approaching it with lack of fear. There's a character in Marvel called Daredevil. The, 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 the subtitle is always The Man Without Fear. Of course he has fear. <laughs> you can't go doing these things. Right? So, so yeah, it's very complex. And I, and I just, I think it, it points to we're not going to find one meaning. Yeah, yeah. This has been a fantastic discussion. Have we done an episode on reality? Did we do one? We do did, know? but we could go back to it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really like how let, this went. I think let me read my, the, the Monty Python thing. Again, okay, yeah, thought, yeah. Okay, so here, here's a way for us to, uh, and the, the meaning of life. Try to be nice to people. Avoid eating fat. Read a good book every now and then. Get some walking in. And try and live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. Now that that's mocked, that's satirical, that's cyberism. Oh, that means that there's no meaning at all. It's not a bad list. <laughs> no, no. And again, if we go back to the disassociating the meaning with the actions, right? If you look at the people we consider most successful, right? You, if you look at a CEO that works 80 hours a week um, and you see just somebody, you disassociate the meaning with the actions. And then all you see is a person yelling at other people and not spending any time with his family and having nice things that there's no time to enjoy and having all of these physical problems because of this heightened stress response. And then you look at the Monty Python character, right? Somebody who's taking a walk, reading a book, you know, doing these simple things. You know, you go, well, yeah, where, where is, are we where is the meaning that there? there? Right. Yeah. Right. So it's it's a very very complex discussion. We I, we could do so many episodes on it, but I think this was at least a good start. It was. So until next time. Bye.